Uh, it is that time of year again. Uh, the pancakes are done for uh, another 12 months, uh, which is pretty tragic, personally. I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a tragedy. Pancakes are like hot cross buns. They should be eaten all year round. Um, they're not allowed to be eaten all year round in our house, which is, um, which is a real shame. On Wednesday, people all over the world were ashed. You know, their foreheads were marked with the sign of the cross from the the burnt offerings of last year's uh, Palm Sunday leaves. And so for the next 40 days, or 40 days minus whatever it was since Wednesday, we find ourselves fairly and squarely in Lent. And Lent is traditionally the 40 days from Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, right through to Maundy Thursday, where Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert and was tempted by the devil, and all of this was before the beginning of his public ministry. For us, Lent is a time of preparation. It's sort of similar to Advent. Advent encourages us in the run-up to Christmas to turn our eyes towards the first coming of Jesus and indeed his return. And so Lent encourages us to slow down and to turn our attention towards Easter and towards the cross, and towards the resurrection. And so over the next few Sundays, I want us to take some time to think about Lent and how we might see it, not just as a time to uh, lose weight, uh, not just a sort of slightly depressing time of year where we're sort of duty-bound to give up uh, the only things that we actually enjoy in life, things like chocolate and coffee and whatever else it is. Um, But instead... To see it as a time of fasting, yes, um, but also a time of feasting. Fasting from the things that we, if we're honest, we don't really want, we don't really need, so that instead we can feast on the wonderful person of Jesus as we turn our attention towards that something wonderful that is to come through the gift of Easter. A time... Uh, over the next 40 days, really, where in, in, in many ways we lay down voluntarily, we've set aside and set down the non-essentials so that we can take up the only essential, which is life in Jesus. And where could you begin, you know, uh, where else would you begin any other sort of, any self-respecting talk on um, about Lent than with the alluring subject of temptation? There's definitely a song there. But none of you, if you've not heard of Simon and Garfunkel, would have ever have heard of, uh, I think it was Heaven 17. Uh, but there's like a great sort of uh, thing I could do, um, but I won't even try that. Um, I think it was Spurgeon. There's a thing going on, isn't there? Like, I, I, like, I think I must be some frustrated um, rock star. Uh, anyway. Um, Steady. I, I think it was Spurgeon who said, on the subject of temptation, he said, when it comes to uh, temptation, he said, just learn to say no. Uh, it will be of far more use to you than being able to read Latin, which is probably true. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, we must learn by experience to avoid either trains of thought or social situations, which for us, not necessarily for everyone, but for us, lead to temptation. Like motoring don't wait till the last moment before you put on the brakes but put them on gently and quietly while the danger is still a good way off 
The truth is, as we all know, and if we're all being honest, we know it far too well, a temptation is everywhere. Whether it's temptation around what we do or we don't do with our time or our energy or our money, there are endless clamoring voices, uh, sort of, I think, from Finding Nemo, you know, seagulls going, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. They're everywhere. C.S. Lewis, again, gives us a keen insight into the enemy's um, strategies. In, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, the master devil Screwtape is instructing the younger sort of apprentice, Wormwood. He, he's in training to become a, a more experienced devil. And he, he says this. He writes to his young would-be apprentice. And he says this. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not, however, matter in the least how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones without signposts. So it should come as no surprise to us that temptation is a major theme uh, in the Bible. The, 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 The fact is that there is a battle raging between good and evil, and and essentially, fundamentally, which one we as human beings are going to choose. Are we going to choose to resist, or are we going to choose to give in? Will we stay faithful to the God who has made us in his image, or will we not? C.S. Lewis, again, uh, wrote this, no one knows how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. Anyone, he goes on, who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Jesus Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation really means. Jesus Christ is the only complete realist. And so temptation is a major theme right throughout the Bible. I mean, the whole thing kicks off uh, with the the most famous uh, temptation story of all uh, with Adam and Eve. You know, and it's got all the classic elements of uh, a temptation story got the subtlety of the enemy asking all the wrong questions engaging the poor unsuspecting victims in a conversation with the devil uh, for goodness sake and it's all around the seduction and the allure and the attraction of a potential life without limits it's all there in the original temptation in the garden but there are many many other stories like it throughout the scriptures you know, you've got Potiphar's wife doing her damnedest, damnedest to try and get the young Joseph uh, into bed. Then you've got Samson and Delilah. She, you know, eventually persuades him to give up the secret to his strength. Uh, Job's wife 
tempts Job to curse God and die. King David famously tempted to commit adultery with Bathsheba as she bathes on the roof. Who bathes on the roof? She did, and it caused all kinds of trouble, but it wasn't her fault, it was his fault. Um, Just so that we're clear, she can bathe wherever she likes. (laughs) It's a sensitive time. Uh, And then he... Uh, he is tempted to cover it all up by uh, committing murder, both of which, I mean, he does, by the way. Uh, so his temptation goes uh, all the way through. Uh, other characters in the Bible are tempted by ambition, some by false worship, others by a deep desire for self-preservation. So temptations literally all over on every single page. Uh, but you see, it matters. It matters a whole lot because how we as individuals respond to temptation is going to determine whether or not we are going to fulfill the very thing that God has called us to. You see, God has called us as his people to be different. God has called us to live by different standards, to reflect a God who is radically different from anything that you'll find in the world. And so how we handle temptation is a central issue regarding whether we're going to be able to fulfill our individual purposes and the purposes that God has for us as a church. So, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Uh, It says this, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone. Uh, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting He left him until an opportune time. Now, if we're going to stand a chance in this battle that rages around us of temptation, and we're going to look at this passage um, over the next few weeks, but if we're going to stand a chance in this battle, it would be a great idea, it would be a good idea if we kind of familiarized ourselves with our enemy, and if we knew when temptation was likely to happen. You know, it's that whole very wise and sensible strategy of know your enemy. You know, if I know when he's going to attack, I can make sure that I'm ready. You know, it's pretty sensible advice. Um, Well, there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, And and the bad news is that there actually isn't very much good news, I suppose. Um, And that's because, just in case you weren't aware... Uh, temptation can pretty much happen at any time. It can happen when things are going incredibly well, 
and it can happen when things are going terribly badly. Uh, it can happen when things are going well. If you go back to these verses that we've just read, uh, look at what's happening with Jesus. Up until this point, for Jesus, um, things couldn't have been going better. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Uh, right before Jesus ends up being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he's tempted by the devil, he's had this incredible experience, this incredible encounter at his baptism. God the Father affirms him by saying, You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. And then, like, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. I mean, it's like spectacular. It's amazing. It doesn't get much better than that. Jesus has been living in, you know, for 30 years in obscurity. He's literally been waiting patiently chiseling and planing for 30 years in his father's workshop and sort of finally the father his heavenly father says it's time you're on you're up it's time and Jesus is like fantastic amazing great awesome this is the moment I've been waiting for and he kind of steps out of that moment and bang straight into temptation and we're kind of like I wasn't expecting that. It was all going so well. What happened? But isn't that our experience? How many times, you know, you're just minding your own business, um, life is going swimmingly, you're having a great day, uh, and you get home full of the joys of spring, and five minutes later, uh, you and your spouse, if you have one, or your flatmate, or your roommate, or some random passerby, suddenly you find yourself in this, having this most ridiculous argument and fight, kind of about like you don't even know what. But all you know is that you're not backing down because you're in the right. And you get all kind of like self-righteous and this is terrible. My day was going really well and now look what's happened and it's all your fault and, and now I've got no choice but to go off and self-medicate in some way and soothe my, myself and all the wounds. And so we find whichever way kind of satisfies our needs, and we self-medicate. You know, maybe you're strolling along, and you're, you know, praying quietly to yourself, which of course you do as we, we stroll along, or you're, you're contemplating your navel or whatever, um, when out of the corner of your eye, you notice a, a very attractive woman, or, you know, a really good-looking young guy. And, you know, you, you, you see them and you kind of have a, a glance. And then you sort of just want to check, like, how attractive they really are and how much you want to thank God for his wonderful creation and turn it into an act of worship and appreciation. And so you have another look. And then you keep looking. And then you stop worshipping and thanking God for his creation and start fantasizing about the relationship that you're going to have with this complete random stranger. And uh, all sort of the things go on from there. And you're like, where did that come from? I was walking along praying, for goodness sake. Temptation comes when things are going well. Temptation comes when things couldn't be going worse. Temptation happens when things are really, really grim. Here's Jesus in Luke 4. He's in the desert. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and we said that, yes, actually, the desert ultimately is a place of strength. But the desert is also a place, if you've ever been to the desert, it's pretty dry. It's pretty empty. Uh, It's a place that symbolizes sort of lack 
things aren't going well when you're in the desert, just in case you weren't aware. Being in the desert is the place where you find yourself hot and bothered and exhausted. Uh, It's where we feel burned up by the intensity of the heat of our lives. We very quickly find ourselves depleted and hopeless and bone dry and thirsty. The desert is a, it's a place of exhaustion. It's a place of weariness. It's a place of barrenness. It's a place where we're on our own. It's solitary. It's isolated. There are no distractions in the desert. There's like a couple of thorn bushes. Great. And some dunes. Great. Here you are. You're already feeling tired. You're already feeling low. You're already feeling pretty numb. You're already feeling like things you know, aren't panning out the way that you'd hoped. But it's in that moment that temptation comes your way. And it comes your way with a, here's a little pick you up. This will make you feel better. Just try me. Drink me. Taste me. Eat me. Let's try it out. See what happens. You'll feel something. And surely it's better to feel anything rather than nothing. 1 Peter says, um, our enemy is like a roaring lion. You know, prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And another way to look at it is like the enemy is, is like an extremely patient sniper. He's perched on some rooftop overlooking our lives and patiently looking through his high-powered scope, waiting to squeeze the trigger, to pull the trigger on his unsuspecting target and take them out. Temptation comes when everything's going really well. It goes when things are horribly going horribly wrong. You know, something is not going according to plan. Uh, We're bitterly disappointed. We're trying to deal with grief, uh, loss. We've suffered some uh, huge setback. I suppose the question for us all this morning is where where are you right now? Where are we now this morning as we step into Lent? Are we skipping across the mountaintops, you know, like with Heinz, what is it, Heinz feet on high places or whatever, you know, and prancing along like Bambi as if not a care in the world, you know, and things couldn't get better, you know, and if you are, that's fantastic, great, God bless you, that's amazing. If you are in that place where things couldn't get better, can I encourage you, because now is the time for you to press into Jesus with all that you have. Make hay while the sun shines. When things are going well, press into Jesus with all that you have. Maybe you're in the opposite place. Maybe you're right in the desert. Everything's gone pear-shaped. Nothing is working. You're feeling like your life is a disaster. You're feeling dried up and burnt out and totally out on your own and you're done. Well, first of all, let me encourage you and say, can you just hang in there because you're in good company? You're in the company of Jesus Christ. And secondly, can I also say to you, Now is the time more than ever to press into Jesus Christ. You've got nothing to lose and give yourself completely over to him. Let me just say this. The issue of how we deal with temptation never depends upon our circumstances, but it always depends on our characters. How we handle temptation is never actually about what's going on. Uh, It's always about who we are. No matter what's going on around us, uh, and it could be amazing and it could be, could be dire, that's actually never really the issue. I mean, have a look at Adam. Adam was in this perfect environment. He had perfect communion with God. He had this gorgeous spouse. Eve was perfect in every single way. He had all of his needs met. 
couldn't have been better. And yet, he still listened to the temptations of Satan and fell. Now, contrast Adam, the first Adam with Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Look at his situation and circumstance. Jesus was in the worst environment possible. He had almost none of his needs met. He was separated from God himself. And yet, on the cross, Jesus triumphed. We can never say of ourselves, I I had no choice. I just couldn't help myself. Succumbing to temptation is never a matter of what's going on around us. It's always a matter of what's going on inside us. And it's never about the heat. It's always about the heart. So, if the desert is such a wonderful place of barrenness, isolation, lack, and general misery, why is it, you might ask, does God take us there? Why does he not take us to the Caribbean or somewhere far more attractive? Um, Why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus out into the desert? Well, Right throughout the Bible, you keep reading your Bible, you're reading your Bibles in a year, I'm sure, you will see, as you read through the story and the narrative of the whole scriptures, especially through the Old Testament, you will see that time and time and time and time and time and time again, um, God leads his children into the wilderness, into the desert. And he does that because he is preparing them for the things that he has for them. You look back over the Old Testament and you see all the big cheeses. You know, you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, David, the children of Israel, all of these people, right? All the greats, the heroes of the faith. And yet God leads all of them out into the desert, into a dry and barren place for a period of preparation, for a a, a time of readying, you know, a time of training for something great that God wants to do through them. And I believe that that invitation is being extended to each one of us through this season of Lent. You see, what the desert does is it it strips us bare. Um, The desert is a place where we're literally sandblasted um, of all the things that we look to to satisfy our souls, to meet our needs, instead of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus and the the wealth that we have in one another. And it's not, like, great when you're in it, but it's really great when you come out of it. The desert prunes us of all the things that we think that we need. You know, the things that we think that we have to have in order to live happy, satisfied lives. The desert exposes the lies um, that we believe about the real value of things. Um, I read the story once about um, a burglary that kind of happened. It was in an electronic store. It was sort of like a Comet or a Curry's or Cupid or whatever they are um, before they uh, went bust, I think, all of them. And it, this burglary happened in the dead of night, and the alarms went off, and the owner was called, and the police were called, and they checked around the store. And uh, when they checked around the store, they were like, nothing seems to be missing. This is kind of peculiar. So they checked the inventory. Nothing, was, nothing had been stolen. Nothing was gone. So... The owner locked up the shop and was like, okay, never mind. Went to bed. 
And then in the morning, the, you know, the people, customers started coming into the shop and they were, they were going up to the till uh, and they were taking their TVs up to the till and, and, and they discovered that the, the price tag on the TV was like £3.50. And people were buying like um, DVD players and they were like £4.75. And then there was a whole bunch of people who were really, really peed off because they'd gone in to buy a, ba- a pack of batteries and they got to the counter and discovered they were 800 quid. Someone else had like, bought a little cable for something, and it was 350 pounds. And what had happened is, during the break-in, the burglars, they, they literally, all they'd done is they just switched the price tags on everything. You know, they'd just gone around the shop, they'd taken the price tags off the, I don't know, the 85-inch Smart 3D UHD 4K LED TVs or whatever is the latest thing. And they put it on a pack of batteries, you know, AAA, and vice versa. You see, because what that's about is our lives are actually all about you and me discovering the real value of things, the real worth, the true value of the things in our lives. Life is actually about getting behind the price tags that the world, in its infinite wisdom, is putting on things, and discovering the real value, the true worth. See, a great life, a life worth living, is where the value that you place on something actually corresponds to its worth. And you will know more than ever, sometimes it's only in the desert that we actually begin to experience the true value of things. And sometimes our biggest heartbreak is the fact that it's taken us that long to realize it. And how we wish we had discovered that sooner. A wasted life is a life where the value and the energy that we give to something bears absolutely no relation to its real value at all. You see, a a wasted life is, you know, it's a life, I don't know, spent, you know, missing your kids when you're growing up because we're so busy climbing the corporate ladder. You know, a wasted life is spending all of our time and energy making sure that the children don't do anything that they shouldn't do because we can't possibly have our house messed up in the the slightest possible way rather than going to hell with it all and just let's spend time hanging out and investing in them and speaking life into them and building them up. Um, A wasted life is a a life spent invested in your golf game rather than in your marriage or pursuing your career at the expense of relationships with people I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I think it was Stephen Covey. He wrote the book, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he wrote this. He said, you climb the ladder of success only to discover that your ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. You see, the enemy's always switching the price tags on things. That's what deception, that's what temptation is all about. We undervalue what really matters, like what we do with our time and our energy and our money. We undervalue what really counts, and we waste ourselves, we spend ourselves on things that really, really have no value. The enemy is always switching the price tags. You know where the word worship comes from? The word worship comes from an old English word, um, worth-ship. And worship is all about our recognizing in the deepest part of our being the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and experiencing and encountering his kingdom. Worship is about being able to get past the price tag that the world has put on Jesus and the world has put 
on the kingdom. And as you know, you look at the cross, you know that the value that the world has put on the cross is pretty cheap. And instead, our life and what we're about is trying to value that properly and correctly and recognize that the value of this wooden cross is priceless. And the desert is a place that brings all of this stuff, I'm afraid to say, to the surface. It makes us very, very aware, painfully aware, of the price tags that we've fallen foul of and the, the lies and effectively, therefore, the idolatries that we, we live with. And in the desert, it all gets sandblasted away. The desert is the place that says all that we need is God and what we have in one another. The, the desert is God's operating theater. And God can, I believe, God can and he does reduce the comfort levels of our lives. He cleans us out so that he can get us ready for something great, something that he wants to do in us and something that he wants to do through us. And the desert, uh, if you read the scriptures, the desert is also a place whereby people went back to their first love after having kind of got a bit lost on the way. It's the place where passion for God is renewed. It was in the wilderness that the children of God, they first found God. It was in the wilderness that the children of Israel, they, they encountered and experienced the love of God and felt the provision of God. And what happens is when people, you read through the Old Testament, you'll see it clearly, um, and expressed differently in the New Testament, but uh, you'll see that when people wander away from God, God brings them back to the wilderness, back to the desert, so that they can renew their first love. Listen to the words of Hosea. This is God speaking to Israel. He says this, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The desert and um, for us here today, the season of Lent, you know, this isn't a place to be feared. This isn't a place to be avoided. It's not something that we should be running away from. It's a place where we come back to our first love, Jesus Christ. It's where we say, God, where have I been? Where have I been? Like, what, what have I been doing? What, what was I thinking? You know, I've accumulated all this rubbish in my life. And, and now that you've brought me out here into the wilderness, it's like... I can see, actually, so clearly that, do you know what? All I want, all I really need is you and your people. Lent is a time of preparation. It's a time for us to ready ourselves, uh, prepare our hearts and minds for what is to come at Easter. It's a time for us to take a spiritual inventory. It's a time, really, for us to really drill down the things that we've been looking at on Sundays over the past few weeks of silence and solitude and Sabbath and slow right down. It's a time for us to kind of sit down and ask ourselves prayerfully questions like, you know, where am I being tempted and what is that about? You know, where am I succumbing to temptation and what's that about? You know, where in my life have I fallen foul of the price tags? Where am I spending my life on something that looks like it's valuable, 
actually is worthless? And where am I not spending time on something that I think is worthless, but actually, if only I knew it was a treasure? What's keeping me from my first love? What's keeping me from loving Jesus? Where am I giving ground? What rubbish have I picked up along the way? What, um, what do I need to be putting down? What do I need to be taking up? Ask the Spirit of God, what are you calling me to fast? And where are you calling me to feast? And when we talk about giving up something for Lent, you know, we're not actually seriously talking about chocolate. You'll be glad to know. Um, it's a bit of a sidetrack. It's kind of missing the point. What we're really saying is um, Lent is a season where each year we voluntarily take ourselves into the desert. We voluntarily, we choose to take ourselves into the wilderness. We're not forced there by circumstance. We choose to go there. We choose to get rid of some of the clutter in our lives. We choose to engage in some spring cleaning. We choose to allow ourselves to slow down and to stop, and to stop consuming vast amounts of entertainment or wasting huge amounts of time, you know, just trying to satisfy and medicate ourselves, you know, with what is not God and what will never get us closer to God. In Lent, what we're doing is we're, we're stripping away some of our secondary satisfactions so that we can make room for our magnificent obsession, Jesus Christ. So, let me encourage us all this Lent to take this season seriously. It's a rhythm of grace and it is a gift from God. Um, and... My encouragement to us all is that we will think seriously about taking ourselves voluntarily into the wilderness, into the desert. Let's choose to do this. Um, we're not being forced by circumstance or situation. We're choosing to do it. We're choosing to take this time in the run-up to Easter to draw near to Jesus, to think upon him, to look upon his cross, and to consider and reflect upon the resurrection so that we might fall in love again with our first love, with our true love, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how's your Lent going so far? <laughs> uh, for me, uh, this Lent, I'm trying to lay down my time. I'm fasting uh, where I'm busy, busy doing nothing of any value or use or importance. Um, apart from the fact that it makes me feel uh, very self-important. And I'm fasting that random busyness, uh, actually, so that I can feast on the presence of God. Uh, so um, I'm trying to feast on reading and journaling and writing and prayer, uh, fasting also in the traditional sense of the word, uh, which is an acquired taste. Um, but an important one, and we will visit that at some point, so hold on to your hats, uh, so that I can spend more time, not in the business and busyness of life, but just so that I can spend more time sitting at his feet, uh, really. I'm trying as best I can to hear his invitation to surrender, to surrender my time and my agenda and my busyness, 
and kind of just hold it all lightly and give it all to him and say, you take me into the wilderness and show me which bits of this are extraneous rubbish so that I can go into the wilderness. And my hope is over these 40 days that I will hear his tender words spoken to me. Uh, Maybe for you, everything in your life is going swimmingly. Uh, Everything is wonderful, which is fantastic. Um, Please pray for the rest of us. Share your buoyant enjoyment of life and abundance. Lay hands on us that we might receive that gift. Uh, It may be that you're in the midst of your own personal wilderness and you sort of have no idea which way is up anymore. Well, either way, whatever the circumstances and the situations of life as it stands at the moment, can I encourage us all to choose to take ourselves into the desert this Lent, to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Uh, Turn your attention to the cross, And during this season of Lent, um, lay everything down at the foot of the cross. Offer it all. Set everything else aside. Seek him out, the lover of your soul, the, the one who died that we might have life. Because he's waiting. I believe he's waiting for you in the desert. And I think he's waiting to speak tenderly to each one of us.